As is the case from previous years, Republicans hold a commanding majority in the Missouri House, and that leaves Democrats with a daunting challenge to make a significant mark in the 2019 session. But House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid believes her party can make a difference and influence the course of debate and public policy. The Springfield Democrat joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking to preview the 2019 session, so let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. I'm in Jefferson City right now in the immortal Mark Powers office, a a former reporter and longtime uh, Democratic communications expert. And my guest today on the show is? Representative Crystal Quaid, a minority floor leader. So welcome back to the show. This is the first time we've got to to talk with you face to face and not through the magic of radio. Thank you. Um, I want to just ask you a pretty simple question. Why did you decide to run for minority leader? It's pretty rare for somebody who's a quote sophomore to seek this post. And it's a very challenging post. I want to get uh, your uh, explanation on why you even wanted this job in the first place. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, I was approached by some of my colleagues to run. Um, this was a, a very late decision, you know, quote, late in the process. You know, oftentimes folks will decide they're going to run for leadership and, you know, travel the state and meet with folks. And um, this was kind of a late decision. Um, but really, we were looking at the, the democratic climate in the state. And um, the party itself is really at a stage of needing to rebuild and um, get better on our messaging. You know, folks are, uh, and, and we may talk about this later, but uh, a lot of progressive values have been approved by voters, but the the elected officials are not. And so, you know, we as a, as a party across the state are really having to dig in and evaluate a lot and make changes. And um, so, you know, when I was a- approached to do this and I discussed with some colleagues, having a fresh perspective is important. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of experience uh, dealing with lots of personalities as a social worker and whoever leads the caucus, that is definitely a huge responsibility for us. And, you know, so I, I, I don't know that I can pinpoint it to one specific reason, um, but I think it was a uh, exciting choice. I'm excited to be in this position to um, help lead the charge for, for my caucus to really recraft what we're doing. There's a map uh, right behind you. Of, of legislators. Are you the only Democrat south of I-70 now? Um, I am, yes. So what, I mean, obviously I've been covering the legislature since 2006 when there are a lot more Democrats in ruralish parts of the state. I know that Springfield, and particularly your district, I wouldn't classify it as rural right. perhaps. Right, But this, this, this kind of uh, delves into the little political realm, but also the legislative realm. What does your caucus need to do to reverse that slide in the rural areas and the suburban areas and get to a point where when you're a leader in 2021 and 2023, perhaps, you have more people from more uh, 
diverse geographic parts of the state. Yeah, uh, this is another one where I don't believe that there is necessarily one answer for this. Um, the Democratic Party as a whole, you know, it, it took us a while to get into this super minority that we are in in the legislature. And that's a combination of things like not simply not running folks um, in places throughout Missouri. There were several legislative districts uh, prior to this last election cycle that didn't have a Democrat run for 10 years, 10 plus years, some, some much longer than that. So number one, having us not be on the ground uh, through our candidacy and campaigns, having one-on-one -on -one conversations with our neighbors about what their needs are and what our hopes are for, for the state of Missouri, that is void number one. So. I believe that we did a really good job this last election cycle having candidates run everywhere. Um, we, we increased our numbers by 50% of candidates itself. That's step one, is continuing to have the message of the Democratic Party out there. As I've already said, you know, folks, we know folks agree with our values, they just don't know that they're ours. And that falls on us for not being present in places in Missouri. So that's one piece of it. Uh, another piece of it is recognizing, and, and you know, the Democratic Party has a lot of different views on policy. Um, you know, we have, uh, there's the hot topic of abortion that, you know, the Democratic Party had to deal with last summer. Um, but we have folks from all across the board who want, who are part of the party who disagree and agree from school choice to, you know, whatever that issue may be. Um, a lot of it is um, continuing to make sure folks understand that we are a welcoming party, that we do have various views. And I think my district is a great example of that. Um, yes, I am a, in a more um, urban part of Springfield, obviously, but you know my district is not overly democratic. It has swung in the House a few times, but when you look at statewide, um, you know we had uh, Jason Kander won, Chris Coster. Uh, it was a very close race, and uh, Hillary, I think, was down by one point. You know, it's it's always back and forth, very very closely in the different elections. I had my campaign sign in the same yard as Donald Trump had in, in Springfield. Talk, talk about <laughs> uh, the clash of ideologies right, and, and perspectives. But, but what's interesting, and I, and I believe Missourians, um, and, I, and I hit on this yesterday on my floor speech, but a lot of Missourians don't necessarily strike a box for party. They vote in um, how they believe. They vote for people. They vote for those that they, they believe that are authentic and honest with them. And they vote for their values. And, um, you know, so we have a lot of work to do. And, and that's not anything I'm going to shy away from. It's going to take us a while to get back. Um, but that's part of, again, why I wanted to run. It's exciting to, to look at the state of Missouri, understand where folks are, and, and meet them at where they are, and have honest conversations. So let's talk about the, the main part of your floor speech yesterday, and that's protecting, quote, the will of the people, because yeah. I think that's going to be a pretty major storyline over the next couple of years. So you mentioned kind of this uh, weird dichotomy that there's a supermajority Republican legislature, yet Missourians defeated right to work at the polls, they raised the minimum wage, they legalized medical marijuana, which I, I don't really think is a Democratic issue, but we can maybe disagree uh, politely on that. And obviously, redistricting and some ethics overhauls. Um, how do you think that your party is going to try to preserve all of those ballot initiative victories? Because it's really daunting. Republicans have the numbers. If they wanted to put a repeal or alteration of the new redistricting system on the ballot. They don't need any Democratic votes, and we'll talk about that part mm -hmm. later. Uh, I know that's a priority, but what do you do to actually try to preserve some of those things? Yeah, and that's a great question, but that can parlay to any policy that we're talking about mm -hmm. in this building. Mm -hmm. You know, we are, we don't even have to show up for there to be a quorum. The Republicans can do what they want here. 
But it comes down to being strategic, obviously uh, working with them where we can. You know, so there, we haven't seen any of the legislation, particularly around clean yet, to even know what that looks like. Um, but the, I, in my opinion, the biggest piece is making sure the voters know what's happening, activating them to reach out to their elected officials. I like to refer a lot back to House Committee Bill 3. That was really the first big, quote, fight that I participated in in the legislature. And just explain what that, you're about to yeah, explain what I, that I is. I will. <laughs> uh, just really quickly, it was um, in the budgeting process, we had uh, given cuts to in-home nursing care for low-income folks, seniors, and people with disabilities. House Committee Bill 3 did several things, but it really adjusted that and made some serious cuts in, in that world without getting in the weeds of it. And we had a bill that was presented at the beginning of session um, that made these cuts. And through, all throughout session, we tried various ways to restore those cuts uh, while being able to balance the budget, but protecting that vulnerable group of people. Um, over the course of the five months, we saw a groundswell of citizens reaching out to legislators, more than I had seen since I've been engaged in politics in 10 years, of folks coming to the Capitol, um, making phone calls, doing email blasts, and making sure that elected officials knew what this, these cuts would do to them. And we saw, at, by the end of session, it was actually the last vote of session that year, a restoration of those cuts. Now, Governor Greitens later vetoed that, so th those cuts were still in, are still in place, but that is a perfect example of when the citizenry gets engaged and holds us accountable and calls us and shows up here and says, we want you to do this, people flip their votes. And they flipped their votes all session long until we were able to restore those cuts. I view this same conversation around initiative petitions and, and as I said, other policies that we're going to be working on. Um, it's our job as a minority party to make sure folks know what's happening here. And if they don't agree with it, that we give them opportunities to be engaged and we help folks know, you know, this can be a daunting process of reaching out to your legislator, coming to the Capitol, testifying in committee. Not a lot of folks do it and I know it can be really overwhelming. So a lot of our job is going to be making sure folks feel empowered and know how to do that so that their voices can be heard. As you said, all of those initiatives were, were won or lost by over 60%, overwhelming numbers for us in Missouri. Um, and so we just need to make sure that those folks have the tools to, to know what's happening and then to reach out to us and help us. Let's go one by one on some of those issues. Let's start with right to work. One of the things that I think has unquestionably happened after um, right to work's repeal is the Republican message on that has gone from a message of inevitability, like it's not when right, it's not if right to work is coming, it's, it's when, to a real skittishness to even kind of discuss the issue. And the only thing that I think is even being broached is possibly having right to work by county now and not statewide. So beyond just reacting to the change in dichotomy, I do want to get your reaction to the discussion of doing right to work by, by county, because as I'm sure you know, Democrats were pushing minimum wage increases by locality, mm -hmm. and I know that Republicans were struck that down. So what do you what do you make of that idea and what would be the objection to say a really conservative county adopting right to work in your opinion yeah um so that's a really great question i will say the republicans when we were debating the minimum wage pieces were saying that you know their pushback was the difficulty of say you live in a county work in another county and vice versa and 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 that was a legitimate argument when it came to minimum wage, from my perspective, and I'll speak for me personally, um, the municipality voted on it. 
The citizenry said, we wanted this. And we came back as a legislature and said, no, you don't get to do that. I view this conversation the same way. One could make that argument about right to work, that you know, going back and forth between counties would make it difficult, whatever. And I'm sure that's a conversation that we will be bringing up on our side. Bottom line for me, when it comes to this, these numbers, uh, let me back up a little bit. Right to work is, a, is an example where we, you know, decades ago, it was on the ballot and folks said no. Then, you know, legislators came back and, um, you know, many, many years later, which is okay to do. I'm not saying we don't have the right to do that. I think that it's been plenty of time between the two, reevaluating the situation. Um, pass it overwhelmingly, of course, very quickly in the legislature. And the citizens told us very loudly that they don't like it. For us to come back again after, and less than, you know, it's been less than six months since, uh, since the voters said that, um, to undo that so very quickly is, that's the piece that I personally really struggle with. And it was the same with the minimum wage. Now, we could talk ideology of whether what's right or wrong on the policy, right. but for us to so very quickly come back and say, voters, no, you're wrong, is not our job. Um, we, may, I, we may not always vote with our voters, what our folks tell us to do as their representatives, but we should do our best to work with our citizens that we represent to be their representatives. And that is fundamentally my personal qualm, bottom line, with this whole conversation, um, to just come right back and say, no, you're wrong. We know better than you. And that's not our job. I'm sure you have a similar sentiment to any push to undo the minimum wage increase. I Definitely. mean, my, my, my understanding was the opponents of that were resigned to the fact that that wasn't going to that wasn't going to fail and they didn't even mount an opposition campaign to it similar right. to 2006 by the way but you know the same kind of threat looms about changing or eliminating that increase through the legislature because it's a statutory change yeah. it, it's not a constitutional amendment uh, what have you have you heard anything from Republicans on that issue, or has that been kind of radio silence compared to right to work or redistricting? Yeah, I thankfully haven't heard anything um, about that. Now um, I know that folks are preparing for that, of course, and especially the you know organizations who worked on the initiative and and interest groups who have been really vocal about wage increases as well as the legislators. Um, so I know people are getting ready to play defense, so to speak, but um, I have not seen or heard here on the ground, them trying to do it, undo that. Now, before we talk about everybody's favorite topic, redistricting, I do want to talk about another aspect of clean Missouri that could be changed, and that's the Sunshine Law. Yes. Um, I want to, I'm going to make the same declaration that I made to Dave Schatz. I am really not interested in sunshining your constituents' emails and posting sensitive information right. online. There's no news value in that, and it kind of goes against journalistic standards to just post sensitive information of a non-public figure for, for no reason. So I, I actually understand that conflict because I've been following this for, for many years. And if the legislature came in and, 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 and passed a law to redact that type of information, I, I wouldn't have any personal objections to it. But as I told uh, Senator Schatz, I think a lot of journalists are going to have objections if you restrict like legislative type process emails. So I want to get your take on what your caucus thinks about that particular issue, because there's no question, even clean Missouri proponents said, you know, the legislature can make changes to the Sunshine Law, and even some people that were for clean Missouri were not necessarily opposed to restricting constituent emails. What's your take and what's your caucus's take on that? Yeah, definitely. Well, the House Democrats have always adhered to us being sunshineable. 
So this is not a new um, process for us, so to speak. Um, so at any point in time, if, if our caucus members had been, there had been a sunshine request, it was our caucus position that we would adhere to that. That said, it is our belief that under the sunshine, there was always the ability to redact personal information. So if I have a constituent who needs help with Medicaid and they send me their social security number and you sunshine my emails, I'm, we, it was our belief that I didn't have to give you that piece of the email because that was a personal, identifiable thing. Um, so when it comes to with clean and, and where we are now, um, you know, I, I agree with you fundamentally that sensitive personal information um, is not something that you know, if somebody reaches out to me as a representative, that should remain confidential that they're dealing with whatever legal issue or what have you that we may be helping them with. Um, but in terms of the legislative back and forth, as you said, I believe, and we all believe in our caucus, that all of that is open record. Um, we have, my staff is paid for by taxpayer money, and so if you want to see an email between us, you know, that's one thing. Um, so we have yet to see legislation for what the Republicans want to do. Um, but, you know, we haven't had, again, without the legislation, it's hard for us to really buckle down as a caucus and say yes or no to this. Um, we are open to the conversation of protecting constituents' stuff. We already looked at it that way. That's how we interpreted it anyway, was that we had the ability to redact personal identifiable information for our constituents. Um, and that was something that we would adhere to continuously. And, you know, if that became a problem, we would address it at that point. Um, so if, if the only thing that the Republicans do to this is say, oh, you can redact a constituent's personal information from a sunshine request, we're going to make that change, that's something that we're going to have a conversation about, of course. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that's the only thing. I've heard everything from any time a legislator talks to another legislator, that information is confidential because it's about strategy. Any time a staff member who happens to be a lawyer which I have many lawyers on the Democratic Caucus staff, then anytime they talk to a legislator, then there is the attorney-client privilege piece, um, which we definitely disagree with. Um, but I, I've heard a whole lot of different things. And this building, in case folks aren't familiar with the culture here, there are a lot of things said and not necessarily a lot of things done. Um, and, and, you know, and you hear rumors about this and that. So we are interested to see what proposals are put forth as I said, we're open to a conversation around that, but we have always believed that w the legislators are sunshineable, and so we have always acted that way. Obviously an insular topic, but an important topic. Open government is always uh, an important thing. So let's talk about redistricting and state legislative redistricting. So any change to the new clean Missouri system would have to go before voters again. It's not something that Governor Parson can wave a magic wand and make disappear. Correct. But um, similar to another line of questioning, um, Republicans could probably put something on the ballot completely eliminating and reverting back to the old system or making pretty substantial changes to it without Democratic votes. Um, I know we've been kind of talking about it's a will of the people issue, mm -hmm. and I know you're probably going to mention that before, but I want to get your take on whether you think the new system that is in place now is better than the old system and why you think it's worth defending, yeah. basically. Um, and I will preface this with, you know, not everyone, again, back to what we were first talking about, not everyone in my caucus totally agrees with all of these things. Um, and I, I would imagine the Republican caucus believes the same way. There are folks w with different ideals. Um, but so I will, I will speak to this just from my personal stance, and um, we may or may not take a caucus position in the future on this. But um, I always had reservations about elected officials 
being part of the process to choose who their constituents are. Um, I know the defense of that, you know, knowing the district where the big roads are and that types of thing and, you know, what have you. But the, the old process was um, shaky at best, you know, with, with how it was done. Um, I, I do believe that this new process is better, and I believe it because we have this nonpartisan person who's going to be hired. Um, you know, there I've heard pushback about, well, since the elected official is in state auditor, Nicole Galloway is part of that hiring process, it's going to become political. I do believe this is going to be less political. I was never told this, but, you know, folks often, when I would have discussions with people, they'd say, well, why the auditor's office? Why not the Secretary of State, you know, when we're looking because at it? Because an earlier version of Clean Missouri had the governor's office, and as soon as the governor became a Republican, it became the right. auditor. which I think is a totally fair question. The way that I looked at it, and for the few various conversations I had, was a few things. One, um, you know, not putting under the Secretary of State's office, that individual, whomever they may be, is controlling all of the elections. So to have another piece of that, uh, another statewide office be in charge of, of this piece of it kind of gives some um, a breakdown of accountability, so to speak, so that it's not all under one person. Um, second piece of that, you know, the auditor was the only, and, and again, I did not get this from anyone, but just looking through it as a citizen of why it made me feel a little bit more comfortable, that was the, the one statewide position that was up for election at the same time. So it wasn't that Clean Missouri was going to go for Nicole Galloway, the Democrat. It was going to go for, you know, the, that person who would be the first one to make these choices was open to a vote of the people. And it was a big issue during that campaign, A huge too. issue. And so, you know, that, that for me was not a partisan stick with that position because it's open to an elect, elected official there. Um, you know, and, and having that outside demographer who's an expert at this, I think, is also a really beneficial thing. You know, uh, I'm a social worker. That's my area of expertise. I am not an expert on any of the other issues that we deal in, and, and I do believe that we should be looking to folks who, who know this better than we do when it comes to actually looking at lines. You know, we could go further down through the breakdown of clean, but there are the different issues that, that have to hit from racial equity, um, you know, in all of those different pieces, and they are ranked in priority, so you have to hit the first one before you hit the second one. Um, you know, there are a lot of reasons why this seems more equitable. Is it perfect? No, it's definitely not. Um, but I do believe it's better than what it was. And I do want to touch on the racial equity piece mm -hmm. because it's going to be, that is probably the thing you alluded to that is causing a little dissension. And I want to make this clear. Not every black politician thinks the same way. They have, they have different opinions on this. They're not a monolith. But having talked to some members of your caucus and some members who of the African-American political community, the aforementioned language that's aimed at protecting minority, majority districts some people think it's strong enough and some people think it's not going to be strong enough to mm -hmm. have this scenario where let's say a 60 percent black district it goes down to 50 percent and that could cause a white candidate to win i'm sure that's been a discussion in your caucus and that may prompt some members of your caucus to vote to put this back up for for about uh put it up back for the 2020 session mm -hmm. and again republicans don't need that but i think that they may want that type of thing so they there it's not painted as oh republican effort it's a right. bipartisan effort so how is that dichotomy playing in your caucus yeah definitely um I, I think you're right that um any sort of dissension among the democrats with when it comes to this issue is going to be helpful for the other side to push it of course um you know the uh, again my caucus works very closely with the um 
legislative black caucus members. Um, so there is a caucus, uh, and not every black legislator is part of the black caucus, but that is a, a caucus that, that I do, um, you know, refer to when we're talking about specific priority issues that they're working on. And and uh, among our, our African-American members, as you said, we, there are differing opinions. There are many members of my caucus who have said, you know, I didn't support clean. There are many members who have said that they did. Um, you know, when with the clean um, campaign, we saw a lot of black elected officials being champions for that as well. Um, I, I think that y you are right in that, and, and some folks who are saying this, in that it may decrease from that 60 to 50. It will also increase places like Springfield, you know, from a 25 to a 35, you know, and so that that equity piece, the way that I read the language, is there. Does it make it so that maybe a district that has been pri primarily by um, with a black elected official there a little bit harder? I don't know. I don't live there. I can't really speak to the culture. And it of that, may be of up those to places. courts to decide what the right, threshold exactly. is. Right. Um, exactly. But at the same time, I do believe that it will increase chances in more places than we currently have. Um, you know, this year the Democratic Caucus has more uh, minority members in our leadership team than it ever has before, which is very exciting for us. And um, you know, so we are going to be looking at this very closely. As I said, we don't have the changes that the Republicans want to put forward. Um, and with many members of our caucus not necessarily being in supportive of CLEAN, um, you know, it's going to be a, a continuous conversation for us. Um, but as I've said before, and I will continue to say, going against the will of the voters is not something that I am going to be screaming from the rooftops to say to do. Um, we're going to be working to make sure that people's voices are heard and that our constituents, you know, what they voted for is what they get. I want to talk about a couple more issues before I let you go. You actually have filed a bill dealing with the Department of Revenue issue. Um, I want you to explain what the Department of Revenue issue is and what your bill is trying to do because this could affect a lot of ordinary people. And when we talk about how Democrats can influence the process, this could be a prime example of an idea that, that could get Republican support. Definitely. And I appreciate this question because, unfortunately, a lot of Missourians don't even know that this is happening. And so any opportunity I get to make sure folks know what's about to happen. So when the federal government did their sweeping tax bill and, and made the changes, um, Missouri then um, you know, took that information and our Department of Revenue has to interpret that and um, we had to change our withholdings threshold for employers to withhold from your paycheck. And so um, to break it really down, when you fill out your W-2 or when you are getting your W-2s and doing your initial paperwork for your employer, you may put zero as your dependents. You may put one or two. And folks often will make that choice based on whether they need money back at the end of the year in, in terms of a refund or if they want to pay in through and pay in throughout the year, you know, people make personal choices on what that all looks like for them. Um, so those the withholding tables were interpreted wrong by the Department of Revenue, and my understanding is that interpretation started in February of last year. In September, the department released that oh we messed up. Here are the new tables. Um, make your changes accordingly. Unfortunately, that was dropped on a Friday at five in September, and uh, you all may know that you know uh, any sort of news that drops Friday at five is not going to get a whole lot of attention. Um, and unfortunately, there just wasn't a big deal made out of that. Long story short, what this means now is folks who um, you know were looking at income thresholds from th around thirty to fifty thousand. We believe will be affected by this. Um, if you may usually get, you know, $150, $200 back, sometimes less than that, um, and we're not totally certain on the range yet, 
if you're expecting to get that money back, there's a very good chance you're going to have to pay in. Um, what's unfortunate about right now, and then I'll get to what my bill does, Department of Revenue has not sufficiently give us, given us that information of who all is going to be affected, how many Missourians are going to be affected by this error that, that from the department's misunderstanding and, and misinterpretation of this, um, and what that looks like. So if I expect X back, what am I going to have to pay? So um, we don't know how many people <laughs> are going to get a surprise bill here at the end of tax season. And it's a huge problem. A lot of Missourians are, you know, they count on that $100, $200 at the end of their tax year to, you know, to catch up on a mortgage, to buy some prescriptions they didn't, to, you know, whatever the case may be, buy their, their kids something that they need, um, and instead will have to pay. So I filed a bill um, that, and, and again, these numbers were... They're not artistically chosen because we don't have a lot of data from DOR, but I wanted to get the conversation started. So if you owe $200 or less, what my bill will do is give you an extra month to pay that money that you owe, or you can set up a payment plan for four months without interest or penalties. You know, I believe that the state made a mistake. We know that. Department of Revenue has already admitted fault here that the citizens should not be punished and have to pay these extra, extra penalties because of our mistake, and we also did not let them know ahead of time. So uh, have you talked with anybody from uh, the governor's administration or other Republicans about this? I have. Um, so, you know, we, we've reached out to the Department of Revenue to try to get some information from them. Um, they have let us know about the request, and they said that they'll get back to us, but, you know, we'll see, hopefully we'll get some numbers. Um, I have reached out to some folks in the governor's office. They are definitely um, wanting the same numbers that I'm wanting. Um, you know, we want to look at how many people are affected. You know, and then there's the flip side of this, that if folks aren't paying in, then that could affect the state's cash flow and what we're able to do, you know, from budgetarily and, and what our spending is, um, because we rely on taxpayer dollars, of course. And so we want to know what the effects of all of this are as well. And and then, yes, to your, to your question, I've talked with a few senators, we've talked to some Republicans, and, you know, everyone... I, I, no one is disagreeing that this is a problem. Nobody has said to me, you know, we shouldn't even be talking about this. Everyone understands that citizens being surprised by a bill is an issue. Um, I just hope that we can get some traction in this conversation continues so that we can make sure folks are protected. My last topic I want to talk with you about is early childhood education. It was a question I asked uh, you yesterday at the press conference. When I interviewed the governor in December and he mentioned he wants the state to become more involved financially in early childhood education, I thought that was a really big deal because it's been something Democrats have been talking about for a while and some Republicans. But when the governor puts that as a major priority and emphasis of his workforce development agenda, um, people take notice. But the question is, um, how do you pay for it and what funding source do you uh, deliver toward it that's not general revenue? Because you could... Let's say, I know this is not going to happen because we only have 2% revenue growth, but if you just took like $200 million of extra general revenue and steered it toward early childhood education for school districts, well, the next year, if revenue goes down, you can't sustain it. So you, it's clear that you're going to need to find either uh, out-of-state internet sales taxes, sports betting. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you all will legalize recreational marijuana. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not optimistic on that. But... Since Democrats have been pushing this issue for so long, I do see them kind of playing a role in shaping this, even if this is a one to two year process. What is kind of your expectations for that? And where does this funding source for this very important idea come from? 
Yeah, well, first I will say I am very thankful that the governor is talking about this and relating it to workforce development. You know, um, there is so much data that shows that investing in early childhood is the best place for us to put our money to have a return. You know, when kids are ready for school and they, they're much more likely to graduate, if they graduate, they're less likely, they're more likely to, you know, be contributing to the economy. We look, we have lower incarceration rates. We have, you know, the list could go on and on. Early childhood is a great investment for the state and it is a workforce issue. Um, and so I'm very excited that he's he's talking about it in that way. Um, to your question about funding, you know, and, and that's always um, the issue in Missouri, unfortunately, uh, at least here lately it has been. Um, you know, the internet sales tax uh, I mentioned uh, yesterday is something that, that Democrats have been filing for many years and we do believe is a, is a great source of revenue for that. Um, and since the Supreme Court ruling um, last year, I believe it was last year, um, that now we know that this is a, going to come down the pike. We just have to have legislation that allows this money to come in. And I've heard the Republicans say that that's something they're interested in doing. Uh, we've seen everyone from the Chambers of Commerce um, you know, across the board saying that this is a good idea to do. Um, and then, as you mentioned, uh, sports betting is something that was, um, you know, the former budget chair's, uh, one of his big issues of getting that done. I do think that that's going to continue, and we're going to see that through um, this year. What that looks like, we're not sure yet. They, I believe there were three bills filed last session, so we're, we're still kind of waiting to see which direction that goes with the sports betting. But you're exactly right. We have to come up with a new source of funding for this. But as I said before, I'm really excited that the governor understands that we have to come up with a new source of funding for this to make it a priority because it, it needs to be done. And, um, you know, our, a lot, some of our school districts have already been addressing this on their own. Um, but with transportation cuts to school, school transportation cuts that we've seen over the previous years, um, it's they can't continue to sustain this on their own, and they, they need our support to really expand this in a way that it needs to be done. I would be remiss if I didn't ask this final question. We're recording this on January 10th, and this is the one-year anniversary of the 2018 State of the State, the day where the state kind of was plunged into turmoil for five months due to the former governor's uh, scandal. And now we're in a situation where Governor Parson is here and I think Republicans and Democrats are, are a lot more excited to work with him than now former Governor Greitens. Do you think that the tone in Jefferson City has changed to a point where people are talking about policy and they're talking about competing ideas instead of talking about rancor and discord that was kind of the, the basically highlights of the one-year tenure of the Greitens administration? Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd be interested in your take on that. Yes. I mean, a very short answer would be yes. The culture has shifted a little bit, shifted a lot here um, since Governor Parson has taken over. You know, while we may disagree on policy, um, he's definitely a statesman. He's been here for a while. He's well respected, um, you know, on both sides of the aisle. Um, I will say this, and I actually had this conversation with someone this morning. As a fairly new person here, as a young woman in, in this profession, it's interesting to me how the, the, a lot of folks here are acting like nothing happened, and uh, we've moved on so very quickly. Which is the reason I'm broaching the topic. Yes, it did um, happen, and it, it, did it, it, it consumed everybody's, everybody who was involved in Missouri state politics lives for five months. Right, and unfortunately, when it comes to the policy side, whether we're talking about the dark money stuff, if you want to talk about sexual harassment changes, um, nothing has changed in those regards. And so as a young woman in Jefferson City, I'm a bit frustrated that everyone's acting like nothing happened because it did. Um, it was an unfortunate time for the state of Missouri. Um, and I understand that when we go through something 
shameful, it's easier to just ignore it. Um, but I really believe that if we want to better be better states people, better craft Missouri government and restore faith in Missouri government, sure it's great to have well-respected people in these positions, but we need to actually address what happened and address those problems um, to get actual faith back from Missourians. Well, Leader Quaid, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I know it's a technical session today, so you're not going to be arguing anything much, but we'll we'll make sure to have you back maybe on a yearly basis for the next few years. Thank you. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How would people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? Um, Twitter is at Crystal underscore Quaid. There's another Crystal Quaid out there. Underscore. Yes, there's another Crystal Quaid out there. So there's an underscore between my name. Of course, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, even on Snapchat. I represent a lot of colleges. So (laughs) I I got rid of my Snapchat a while ago. It's not very useful. Instagram stories are where it's at. Yeah, depends on which age demographic, right? The high school kids right now are Instagram, I think. But, you know, now I'm aging myself. Well... (laughs) Until next time, so long.